Amen. And welcome. Good morning as well. My name is Eric Barton. Greetings from the second floor. You've now heard from somebody on all three floors. We'll be taking an offering on the roof at the end of our service. Just kidding. I'm delighted that you're here, and I want to say thank you to Ryan and Sarah Delmore as well for being with us. We had an amazing evening last night. Megan's already mentioned that, but it was such a thrill, such a treat to hear vertical expressions of our God, His goodness, His glory, His grace echoing around the downtown hardscape streets and buildings and walls. It was so wonderful. And what's really great is they're going to be right back up on the platform to lead us in some more music right as soon as I am finished this morning, preaching through Ephesians chapter 6. So if you've got your Bibles, I want to invite you to go to Ephesians chapter 6, beginning in verse 5. Ephesians, this wonderful echoing, this refrain and repeat of the gospel. We talk about the gospel all the time at this campus because it's sort of the whole centrality of our being. The gospel is the good news, the great story, the awesome announcement of what God has done in Christ to redeem us to himself and to one another. So that sounds really nice and good, but it's a little bit abstract. What practical value does that have in our day-to-day living in life? Well, it matters massively because quite literally in this age, in this life, in this world, God could not actually be closer to you or me than he is right now. In the book of Ephesians, we've been studying it this whole calendar year, 27 times Paul says that we are in Christ. That's our identity. That is our station in the cosmos in Christ, union with Christ, and that Christ, the Son, is in the Father, and that the Spirit of God is in us. He literally could not be closer. So what value does it make for the Christian to be eternally and permanently indwelled by the Spirit? This morning leads us to our big idea, and it goes very simply like this. The fruit of the Spirit is sincere submission. The fruit of the Spirit is sincere submission. We're going to see that played out. So I'm going to read Ephesians chapter 6, verses 5 to 9, and then we'll unpack it and we'll see how we can apply it. Ephesians chapter 6, beginning in verse 5. Bond servants, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart as you would Christ, not by the way of eye service as people pleasers, but as bond servants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart. Rendering service with a good will as to the Lord and not to man, knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether he is a bondservant or is free. Masters, do the same to them and stop your threatening, knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven and that there is no partiality with him. This is God's word. So we need to have a little bit of a background, just a quick review, just as a reminder. This section that Paul writes here, uh, all of the end of chapter 5 and all the way through chapter 6, verse 9, is what's called a household code. Now that probably doesn't make a whole lot of impact for you and for me, but back then when Paul wrote this, it was absolutely enormous. Greek and Roman philosophers were sort of known for producing what they called household codes, and there was an instruction of how to run the household. That was the fundamental building block of civilization and society. That's pretty much all there was. Guys like Seneca wrote the most famous household code, and it was only addressed to men, since only men in that time were actual, you know, people, and so it was addressed to men, and it was very clear in saying that women in marriage existed only for reproduction, 
that children were not really human fully until they reached a certain age. This is where I usually get a lot of amens. Easy. The children aren't really fully uh, human until they reach a certain age. And Seneca famously said, treat your slaves as enemies. And so that was the default understanding of the Roman Empire. That was the household code of how civilization and society was to function. But then the Apostle Paul comes around and he writes his household code. We've studied this a couple of weeks ago. We looked at marriage, then we looked at family last week as Mike talked about parenting and children. And it finally comes down now to the dealing with slaves and masters. But I want to remind you, this entire household code is referring back to verse 21 of chapter 5, that it says we are to submit to one another, and that that looks back to verse 18. Be filled with the Spirit. I will contend, only because I'm 100% accurate, that verse 18 of chapter 5 is the center thrust and theme of the application section of the second half of Ephesians. In other words, we have three chapters of deep, wonderful theology and doctrine, and then three chapters of application, and 518 is the high water mark. Be filled with the Spirit. What does that look like? What does it look like for people to be filled with the Spirit? Well, they worship together. They sing songs and spiritual songs and psalms. They come together corporately and they are affirmed and edified. They are equipped and encouraged together. That's what it looks like to be filled with the Spirit. Secondly, they submit to one another. So we're going to say it again. The fruit of the Spirit is sincere submission. In other words, it requires the indwelling of the Spirit of God himself, the third member of the Godhead Trinity for people to normatively and joyfully be willing to not get their way. <sighs> that does not sound like me on most days, which is a great reminder that I am as yet having the opportunity day in and day out of having to be filled with the Spirit so that I don't have to get my way. Paul goes through a little bit of a list in Galatians when he says the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, and following. It's a little bit more developed, a little bit more nuanced here in Ephesians. The fruit of the Spirit is sincere submission. So let's look at this. Back in chapter 6, beginning in verse 5. Now, my ESV translation says bond servants. Yours might say that as well. But no, it's slaves. And we need to talk about slaves. This is an important concept. The term is doulos. It is not indentured servitude as much as we would like for it to be. It's slaves, personal property, owned by somebody else. But we have to understand what's going on in the custom and the culture and the context of slavery. It is very different than the slavery that we experienced in our context in the 18th and 17th centuries. Slavery was a real thing. It actually took place, and so we have to talk about it. And we have to talk about it honestly and with integrity. And this matters because someone will very likely come up to you and have a conversation with you that goes something like this. Okay, Christian, you believe your Bible, right? And you say, yes, of course I do because that's what I'm supposed to say. Yes, of course I do. And you believe that it's inerrant and it's inspired and it's authoritative, it's sufficient, all those great words. You say, yes, I do. And they go, wait. So your Bible gives you all the instruction you need for matters of marriage and gender and sexuality and all these kinds of issues. And you say, yes, I believe that. And they go, oh, okay. Then Mr. Christian, Mrs. Christian, Miss Christian, what do you do with the fact that your Bible condones slavery? Hmm, what do you do about that? Because the Apostle Paul never calls for the abolition or the elimination of slavery. Neither did Moses. What do you do about that? Does your Bible 
condone slavery as a 20th century president sitting in office tried to discredit scripture by saying, you can't trust the Bible, it condones slavery. And no, it does not. So how would you answer that question? How would you respond to that charge that our Bible condones slavery? One, of course, and in fact, it does not. Slavery existed. It was a normative part of life. It is estimated that some 60 million people in the Roman Empire were slaves of some kind. 60 million. That's literally one-third of the population. One-third. Now, to be super clear, it was a lot different than the slavery that we experienced in our context. It was not an ethnic or racial uh, a people trading kind of a thing. If you were a conquered nation, you could be pressed into slavery. But if you caused damage or you were in debt, you could sell yourself temporarily, always temporarily into slavery, usually about 10 to 15 years. Professionals were often slaves. Almost all the doctors and teachers were slaves. I know some of you in that profession think nothing's changed. <laughs> I know. It was actually slaves that had rights. You could actually sue your master for breach of contract or excessively harsh treatment. We also have to remember that slavery was just the normative expression. Life without slavery in the Roman Empire would be like saying life without electricity today. Some of you are like, I don't care. Okay, let me get, make it much worse. It would be like life without the internet. Oh, yeah. It just got real dark in your world. I know. It was unthinkable. And so Paul's not trying to abolish and obliterate a social ill. He's doing something much more profound than that. Any more than Jesus does not come on the scene and try to obliterate and eliminate the Roman Empire. He actually loves Romans. He's trying to transform human hearts from the inside out that will be instrumental in making those changes. So Paul does not abolish slavery. In fact, both Testaments recognize and regulate the practice of slavery. But it's interesting, in Paul's household code, there are three sections. There's marriage, there's family, and then there are slaves and masters. What's really interesting for us is that in the created order, we see marriages. In the created order, we see parents and children. The created order and ordinance that is, what God created and what God commanded, does not include slavery. It is a product of the fall and the curse. And so the New Testament does not establish slavery ever, nor does it condone it, but it does establish regulations to make it decent. The closest illustration would be divorce. Clearly, divorce is not something that our Bibles want, but there are strictures and regulations to help regulate it and make it possible, even though it is not a part of God's created order nor his ordinance. And so we have to talk about this issue of slaves. And remember, this is a household code. Paul's not trying to obliterate every social ill. He's saying this letter is going to be read in your house church in Ephesus where there are literally men, women, children, slaves, and masters sitting side by side, maybe two or three households gathered together. Paul's trying to say this is as real and as practical as the gospel gets because you're worshiping together on the Lord's Day, but on Monday, you go back to your life. There were no multinational corporations and conglomerates. Every family's business was the family business, and that's all that it was. And so this Work took place seven days a week, and Paul's saying, I want you, slaves and masters, both in the Lord. When you start your day tomorrow, it's going to be different. And so we get four verses addressed to slaves and just one addressed to masters. Slaves, obey your earthly masters. The word obey is to, to respond to their verbal instruction. Heed them, hear them, and then do what they say. 
Obey your earthly masters. But just the fact that Paul addresses them at all is shocking. Mike mentioned this last week. All household codes of the day addressed only men. So far, we've addressed women. We've addressed children. And now we're addressing slaves. Paul is treating them as equals in Christ. So obey your earthly masters. They are not your spiritual sovereigns. They're not your dominus in the spiritual sense. They are your earthly masters only. And do so with fear and trembling. Now, that's tripped a lot of people up. This is not abuse language. This is worship of God language. All throughout the Old Testament, when somebody would encounter God, they would see him and they would approach with fear and trembling. We're to worship with fear and trembling. Paul's making a connection. One, that Jesus is God. And as we obey, as we submit ourselves as a fruit of the Spirit, we do so out of, here's the biblical definition of fear. Awestruck joy. Not fear of predation as if something's going to eat me, harm me. It's, that's the fear that the Bible wants us to have for our God. Awestruck joy and wonder. That's how we are to go about our responsibilities. Now, please understand, we are not making the leap out of the slave-master relationship yet. All too often, this passage gets ripped out of context and said, okay, well, it's about your workplace, employer and employee. Not yet it isn't. Paul meant a very specific thing to these readers that we have to understand later will apply it. He says, do so with fear and trembling with a sincere heart as you would Christ. If Jesus was your master, how would you obey him? Well, it's not a hypothetical because he is with a sincere heart. The Greek term here has this idea of simplicity and consistency. There's no folds in the fabric. It's even and it's smooth. The Latin term, sincere, it's without wax. They would make a a, a piece of pottery. And if it was a cheaply done piece of pottery, they'd fill it full of wax. And you could come up and you could hold up to the light and go, oh, this has got wax in its cracks. This is no good. This 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 is not good workmanship. Jesus says, Paul says to you, I want no wax in your cracks. That's true. I want you to be sincere so that when you're held up to the light, it's good all the way through. That's how we are to serve. That requires mindfulness. In fact, it's not natural at all. It's a supernatural thing. The fruit of the Spirit is sincere submission. Verse 6, not by the way of eye service as people pleasers, but as slaves of Christ, which incidentally, ironically, is the only way to actually have, enjoy, and experience freedom is to be a slave of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart. It is interesting that according to the will of God, he wanted slaves to obey their masters. Now, he wasn't condoning slavery. He was saying, what I want more is the ethic of the kingdom implanted into every human heart, and that they will, from the inside out, transform those institutions of sin and fallenness and evil, which they did. The evangelicals of the 18th and 19th century were saying, hey, this is the time. We can no longer tolerate this sort of treatment of other people, other image bearers. We must act. It took time, but it is what God had in mind. Verse 7, rendering service with a good will as to the Lord and not to man. Rendering good service, doing good work. Some of you might know that many, many years ago when we were still in the very early stages of planting this church, we were effectively nomads. We had to move all over. We had ministry happening in all different buildings all over the city, and that required going in early, setting up chairs and tables and running speaker cables and running speakers and soundboards and doing it all and then taking it all back down again. And week after week, after a while, it candidly got pretty exhausting. Then after a while, it started to kind of generate some bitterness, I don't mind telling you. And I was sharing this with another pastor friend in another town. He said, you know, we had the same thing. 
He said, but for us, it was transformed. I said, well, how? What, what did you do? He said, every single chair we moved, we would say either to ourselves or out loud, Lord Jesus, you're worth this. Next chair. Lord Jesus, you're worth this. Next chair. Lord Jesus, you're worth this. Next chair. Before you know it, you've set up 100 chairs in rows, and you've said, Lord Jesus, you're worth this. And before long, that work actually turned into worship. And we began to do that, and it was transformative. And I don't miss it, let me be clear, but it was an amazing, sweet time to go, I'm doing this not so that anyone else can see, but because I love Jesus, he's worth this. And so even to this day, we'll be doing things in this building or wherever, and I have to remind myself with my attitude to be mindful that, Lord Jesus, you are worth this, even if it's grudging, even if it's sometimes plumbing duty, whatever it might be. Some of your children do incredible things on our floors. And you know what? Lord Jesus is worth that cleanup job as well. Verse 8, knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether he is a bondservant or is free. There is a reward. We don't know what it is. We just trust what God is like, that it's way better than we can ever imagine or even dare to dream. That we might not be observed by our masters. They may never take notice of how awesome we actually are, and that's probably a good thing. But our Lord knows every finite, minute detail, and he cares. That's what it is to be sovereign. He actually knows the daily minutia of our working lives. Whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether he's bondservant or is free. And then finally, verse 9, one verse addressed to masters, but it is a walloping punch. Do the same to them. Now, that was revolutionary. Treat them with respect? What? That was completely upside down, inside out, and inverse from Seneca's household code and everybody else's. Do the same to them. Treat them with respect and stop your threatening. That was huge. He completely takes the playbook out of the master's hands. The masters would threaten with physical harm or with uh, banishment or with sexual abuse or harming of their families. Paul says, no, 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 no. You no longer get to threaten your slaves. That's not who you are. That's not whose you are. That was revolutionary. Was it an abolitionist thing to say? It was not, but it was revolutionary for him to say so knowing that he who is both their master and yours, that's amazing, is in heaven and that there is no partiality with him. In the Roman world, it was all about partiality. That's how things got done. It was all esteem and elevation of class. Paul says, not to your master in heaven. There is no difference. You are in Christ and you are fully so, or you are not. So we are to treat one another as if that was the case. Sincere submission is the fruit of the Spirit, or we'll flip it, the fruit of the Spirit is sincere submission. So how do we apply that, make that as practical and pertinent for us as we can in our everyday lives? I've got four very quick points here, four very quick principles that we should all be able to carry into our everyday walking around world. Number one goes like this. Practice the presence of God. There is never a time when he is not near, despite how you and I might feel about it. There is never a time that he is not near, and so we practice his presence. I take this from one of the 
first little books I ever read that totally transformed my life, written by a guy named Brother Lawrence in the 17th century in France. He was a monk, and he would write about how he would chop carrots and he would peel potatoes all to the glory of God to, to feed his fellow friars to work in the kitchen. And he had a little, little sign over the sink in their monastery kitchen, worship, conclude, worship conducted here thrice daily. Such a great thing. He would practice God's presence, and he would practice, and he would practice. Why does it require practice? Because it is not our default tendency nor proclivity. We have to work at it to practice his presence. See, there is no dividing line between the sacred and the spiritual. That is a cultural carryover that for some reason still persists, that comes over from Roman Catholicism, that the gospel obliterates. If you would have asked Jesus, tell me about your spiritual life, you'd have said, what are you talking about? There is no difference. The sacred and the spiritual are synonymous. They are identical. Everything in our lives is essentially spiritual and physical. That's because we are in Christ. Christ is in the Father, and the Spirit is in us. And that's utterly amazing. We are to be mindful of his presence and go about our days going, you know what, I'm going to let that person in because, Lord Jesus, you're worth it. I'm going to do this extra thing because, Lord Jesus, you're worth it. I'm not going to cheat on that expense report because, Lord Jesus, you're worth this. Now, that can get a little bit excessive, I dare you. I dare you. See if you can wear that out. I promise you can't. Practice the presence of God. Number two, this passage and really the entire household code teaches us a very practical, important reminder, and it goes like this. There are no disposable relationships. Parents of children, those children were disposable. Wives in those days were disposable. Friends, disposable. Slaves, disposable. Paul's saying, no, there's no such thing as a disposable relationship. Our culture, being so consumeristic, likes to say, when this one is no longer satisfying your wants or needs, upgrade, get a new one. Not many of you still have an iPhone 2. Mm -hmm. Except for you, Lee. Way to go. Most of the rest of us have actually upgraded and can text full words. It's true. That's not how we are to treat people. There are no disposable relationships. Part of the curse and the fall and sin is that now people have a tendency to treat people as objects of opportunity rather than image bearers of God most high. And so we see that as it impacts marriages, friend relationships, in our workspaces, how we think about others is reflective of what we understand about God. And I suspect if you're hearing my voice on any of our three floors or watching remotely, that someone has probably at some point treated you as though you were a disposable relationship. But praise be to God that Jesus does not think of us that way. Neither should we. His, Paul's message in his household code is revolutionary. Every person we encounter and enter into a relationship with is an eternal and everlasting person that we have the opportunity to see Christ through uniquely. Every one of you is a unique manifestation of the image of God himself. So when someone irks you, understand that that relationship has been treated as disposable, but that it is not and that there is grace for that as well. The fruit of the Spirit is sincere submission. This third port point is likened unto the second. It goes like this. Christians have no power differential. I hear this all the time. Hey, we need to go on a mission trip, and when we go, make sure you lower the power differential. I go, we have no power differential. We're Christians. We are sinners saved by grace 
Full stop. When I see Christians try to lead with their strong right hand, with their strengths and their talents, that's because they still think they have strengths and talents. But no, there is not one who is good. No, not one. Nothing good in me except that which comes from Christ. And so when we interact and engage with one another, we don't have to always try to vie for home field advantage. I told one of our guys last night, no, I am not going to go bowling with you because that's your home field advantage. And then I thought about it, I went, yes, yes, fine, I'll go bowling with you and I will look like an octopus falling out of a tree, the whole thing, I'll do it because I'm willing to enter into weakness because that relationship is worth it. We, there is no power differential. We are willing to submit to one another to look like the weak one because we are. And our attitude is the only thing God actually gives us control over. So we have no power differential. Paul's household code, both to families, to, to parents, and to masters and slaves, shows us that the way to lead is to go low. Anybody in your life that you feel like you have to lord over or direct or strong arm, you're doing it wrong, Christian. You're doing it wrong. There's grace for that. Repent. Rethink your thinking so that it will be rethunk and go low. Fourth point. Yes, and finally, we apply this to our 21st century lives. Work matters to God. At long last, we make the jump and apply this discussion of slaves and masters to our world and life today in the arena of employment, and our work matters. We're not slaves, of course, but we do offer, as employees, we offer our time, our talent, and our toil. That's what we offer up our little engines that are our bodies and our minds, we offer those up, and so for the time we are compensated, that time, toil, and talent is on lease. And so we are to do the most with it that we possibly can. We spend an enormous amount of time in our daily lives in a vocation. And so please understand, that word vocation literally means calling, the thing to which you were called. And you might think, well, I'm not in clergy, I'm not in religion. Yes, you are. This is what Dorothy Sayers wrote. She said, religion that deals with only 10% of life is no real help at all. The gospel transcends every waking and sleeping moment of your life, especially your workplace. Especially. One of the reasons that Christianity took off and spread so rapidly, it brought the good news of the gospel into every facet of life. Yes, in the Reformation, Martin Luther, they would say sola scriptura and all the other solas as battle cries of the Reformation. But one of the primary battle cries of the Reformation was the priesthood of the believer. Now, many people in Protestantism have misunderstood that, and they think that it means, well, I don't need to go to a priest or clergy class. I can talk to God myself. And that's true. That's not what Martin Luther meant. What he meant was, if you are productive, if you are working, you are called to it, and your productivity, your work, your toil, your time, your talent, that is priestly. Whether you're serving fries through a drive through window or you are elbow deep in somebody's chest cavity, you are a priest in that context, serving as unto the Lord. Lord Jesus, snip, snip, you're worth this. Lord Jesus, you want fries with that? You're worth this. And everything along the spectrum... Our work matters to God. In other words, our work is an opportunity for worship. Christians, mindful Christians, should be the greatest employees in the world. Unfortunately, that is not our reputation very often. Whether you're stacking chairs or whatever you're doing, it's an opportunity. Lord Jesus, you're worth this. 
Lord Jesus, you're worth this again and again and again because the fruit of the Spirit is sincere submission. We get to look at Jesus for our inspiration in conclusion. Look at what he did as he steps out of glory. In this case, the master humbles himself and goes low. And I mean low, even death, even death on a cross because he was filled with and fueled by the spirit of God, which is our opportunity and our invitation to do so as well. So be filled with the spirit to worship together, to work together. And yes, to submit to one another. Our Lord Jesus is worth it. We're going to pray together, and then we're going to have more worship from Ryan and Sarah Delmore upstairs. So I invite you to sit tight, continue to let the Lord do a work in you through his word, by his spirit. I'm going to invite you to pray with me, and then stay where you are. We're going to have some more music, so let's pray. Father, we do thank you for who you are, for what you have done in Christ, to redeem us to yourself and to one another. And I pray, Father, for any relationship, any situation that is in need of your grace, that you would reveal that, that you would sew up wounds, that you would bind up hurts. And Father, that you would give us the spirit, the filling to give us the direction to submit to one another. And if we did that, God, we'll be careful to give you the glory. Father, if there's anyone here this morning in any of our floors or watching remotely that does not know you, I pray that you will move irresistibly by your spirit and lead them into a saving knowledge of your son, Jesus, that they would step out of death into life. And for the rest of us, Father, would you turn our eyes upon Jesus, that we may look full into his wonderful face and live like him. We pray all this in the power of your spirit and in the name of Jesus. Amen.